Ruth chapter 1. From this chapter, I'm going to be preaching on what could very possibly be someone in this room today's favorite food. How many of you be interested in hearing a sermon about your favorite food from this chapter? I guess some of you are thinking, well, it depends on what that favorite food is. And there are some people who actually don't like this food. I had a grandmother who died recently. She couldn't stand it. She would not eat it. I don't understand it. Because it is one of my favorite foods. Ruth chapter 1, starting with verse 14. When you have it, say amen. It says, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So I want to use for my subject this morning, the gospel with extra chocolate. Let's pray. Father, bless us as we look at your word now, and I pray that you would take the word off of the pages and put it into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're going to be looking at today is, is based primarily from the first chapter of the book of Ruth. And as as we look at Ruth chapter 1, there are two specific things that have jumped out at me. I'm sure there's 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 obviously more than just these two lessons in in the chapter if we were to really dig deeper, but we don't have time to uh, uh, do a more inductive study, so we're just going to look at two things that I see in Ruth chapter 1. First, we find a representation of the dangers of disobedience. And number two, we find the powerful example, the powerful influence that we as Christians can have on others when we're simply faithful to God and loving to other people. So we're in Ruth chapter 1. Let's, let's begin with the first two verses. Ruth chapter 1, starting with verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon 
and Chilion. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So as we, as we begin our study, I want us to start off by identifying some names and terms that we're seeing here. Number one, the Bible tells us that this family in this passage came from the city of Bethlehem. Now, the word Bethlehem, the, the, the city, the name Bethlehem, it, it had a meaning. Lots, lots of different names in the Old Testament carried meanings. And, and the word Bethlehem actually meant house of bread. And uh, it's interesting, I, I was preaching this, this sermon at uh, one of my churches in Arizona, and uh, one of my elders came up to me afterwards and said, it's interesting, you, you say that, that um, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. Jesus is called the bread of life. And where was he born? In Bethlehem, the house of bread. You could say that the bread of life was baked in the house of bread. Number two, there have been many different cities and and villages around the world and throughout history that have been named Bethlehem. And so, and this was even in biblical times. And so the writer specifies where this particular Bethlehem was. It was the Bethlehem in the territory of Judah. Now, Judah, as you know, was the fourth son of Jacob from his wife Leah. His name in Hebrew was Judah. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. My, my wife is the Jew, not me. And, and so if, I'm, if I mess up any pronunciations, I'm sure I'll hear from her later. Um, I'm, I'm a country boy from the Southwest and, so I, um, and, and the South, and so I, I don't always pronounce everything right. So it might be Kilion, but I see Chile, and what do you think I'm going to say? <laughs> But uh, it's, from, it's from Judah in Hebrew, Judah. And, and uh, the root word was yada, which meant praise. And so the definition of Judah's name was, may God be praised. And so since Bethlehem was in the land of Judah, you could say that it was the house of bread in the land where God is praised. Number three, the first character that we meet here is a man named Elimelech. Now, just like how city names had meanings, people's names also had meanings. And uh, Elimelech's name meant, my God is king. Sounds like a good name. My God is king. So it seems likely to me that his parents were probably God-fearing people, and so that's why they gave him a name 
like that. They, that's why they would have chosen for him such a deeply spiritual name. My God is King. By giving him that name, they were in essence, they were accepting Israel's government as a theocracy, and they were they were recognizing that God himself led his people through divine rule and that God himself chose their human leaders. However, as we will see shortly, I, I personally have my doubts that Elimelech himself lived by the same ideals and commitment to God that his parents had. And number four, lastly, we find our family moving to the land of Moab. And as as you look at the background of the people in Moab, you will find that they were distant cousins of the Israelites. If you remember the story of Lot and his family, God had sent an angel to warn them to flee from Sodom before it was destroyed. Lot made it out of the city with his wife and with two of their daughters. But then as they were escaping from Sodom, Lot's wife turned around and looked back and God turned her into a pillar of salt. Then Lot and his two remaining daughters fled to the mountains and they lived in a cave. And there in that cave, Lot's two daughters decided to take turns getting their father drunk so that they could sleep with him. By the way, parents, be careful where you raise your kids. It's possible that that had they lived somewhere other than Sodom, then his daughters might have come up with some other ideas than that. So be careful where you raise your kids. Be careful what you expose your kids to. But Lot's daughters decided to take turns getting him drunk so that they could sleep with him and so that they could get pregnant by their father. And the Bible tells us that Moab was the son of Lot from a night of drunken immorality with his oldest daughter. So that tells us the origin of the Moabites as a people who were literally rooted and grounded in immorality right from the beginning. And the next significant mention of them in Scripture shows how they did not improve over time. It was during the period when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness after escaping from Egypt that a Moabite king named Balak had called for a backslidden prophet of God named Balaam. And he had asked Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And when Balaam was unable to curse the children of Israel... He then encouraged the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men and to lead them into immorality and to lead them into idolatry, thereby causing them to experience the wrath of God. Throughout the Old Testament, the Moabites were a perpetual 
enemy of God and an enemy of God's people. God placed a curse on them because of how the Moabites had caused Israel to fall at Beth Peor. In fact, twice in the book of Psalms, you can find it in Psalm 60, verse 8, and then again in Psalm 108, verse 9, God makes the statement that Moab is my washbowl, or Moab is my washpot, depending on what your translation is. Now, I'm originally from Mississippi, so when I saw it say, Moab is my wash pot, uh, you can probably guess where my mind at first went and what I originally interpreted him as saying. Well, he wasn't being quite that insulting to them, but it really wasn't much of an improvement. What, what he was actually saying was, you know, this was a metaphor of utter contempt on the part of God towards the Moabites. And, and the SDA Bible commentary explains how Moab was notorious for its pride. And so the psalmist was comparing this arrogant nation of Moab to a vessel in which a victorious warrior washes off his dirty feet after he comes home. And so with all of that for, for the background, we find this man Elimelech taking his family with him to Moab because of a famine in the land. And this, I believe, was a great sign of spiritual weakness on his part because when problems came, he could have stood his ground and he could have prayed to God for a solution, couldn't he? But he didn't. Instead, Elimelech, this man whose name declared, my God is king, this man made the conscious decision to compromise and to take his family with him to a land and to a people who had been cursed by God. And it got me thinking, what about us today? What do we do when trials come? Where do we go when problems arise? Many people will go to a bottle to help them forget about their problems. Many people will pick up a cigarette thinking that it will relieve their stress. Many people will go to an immoral relationship thinking that they will find acceptance. Many people will, will simply collapse on the couch and spend endless hours filling their minds with pointless nonsense, hoping that if, if they will just get their minds off of their problems, then the problems will no longer be there. And, and I'm not just talking about people out in the world. Because the problem is there are too many of God's people who are not standing their ground, placing their faith in God, and praying to him for deliverance when problems come, when trials come. Instead, they're running away from the house of bread in the land where God is praised, and they are going to Moab for their comfort. That is not God's plan for his people. And if we, as long as we stay in cursed territory, we can never expect for God to bless us. So let's read on, verse three. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. 
and she was left with her two sons. So with her probably unbelieving husband gone, Naomi was now left in a foreign land surrounded by people of different moral and religious values than her people. And only her sons were left to her. So were her sons any better than their father was? Well, verse 4 leads me to believe that they probably were not. Because verse 4 says, these, meaning Elimelech and Naomi's sons, it says, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Had these two young men been faithful to God, they could have taken their mother back to Bethlehem in Judah. Had these two young men been faithful to God, they would not have wanted to remain in a heathen land. Had these two young men been faithful to God, they certainly would not have wanted to marry pagan Moabite women. And so, alas, it it seems to me that they were probably more like their unbelieving father in that they clung to the sinful world rather than wanting to repent and return home to God's people. And their sad story comes to an end in verse 5, where it says, And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. With her sons and her husband all gone, Naomi was left with nothing but debts and nobody but her two heathen daughters-in-law. The Bible goes on in this story. We'll pick up in verse 6 and read all the way down to verse 14. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. 
but Ruth clung to her. So here we find in, in our story that Naomi decides to return to her own people and to the land of her faith. This is the first sign of real faith that we see in this story. And you'll notice that initially both of the daughters-in-law decided to go back to Bethlehem with her, but then one of them turns back and returns to her own people at Naomi's bidding. But one of them doesn't do that. One of them makes the commitment that she is going to stay with her. We keep going, verses 15 to 17. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything from death parts me from you. And so Ruth here makes the determination that she is going to stay with Naomi, and by doing so, she is actually making a declaration of faith in Naomi's God. Because she says, your God will be my God. And it got me to thinking, is it possible? Could it be that Naomi was the only one in that family to actually live out her faith in God? Could it be? that Naomi lived as a loving example to others of what God's love for them was like? Could it be that Ruth chose to follow Naomi and to accept Naomi's God because of something that she could see in Naomi? because of a difference, a positive difference that Naomi had made in her life. And if this is true, then I want to submit to you today that we need more people like Naomi in the church today. We need people who, who, who won't just simply go around talking big about God, we don't need more people who, who, who just go around spouting off all the proof texts that they know of all of the doctrines that they know to try to show everyone else how we're right and they're wrong. We've got enough people like that already. You've met them, I'm sure. I, 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 I have a friend who um, is a recently retired pastor, and he's moved away, but he still has a weekly column in the newspaper for the town where he last pastored at. And I don't even live there anymore. It's where I grew up. But, you know, it's, it's an embarrassment 
to find every week where this Seventh-day Adventist minister is using the local newspaper column every week after week after week after week to try to pick fights with the community. Because that's what he does. That's all he does. If he's not trying to pick a fight with the community, he's using the newspaper column to air our dirty laundry. We don't need that. I mean, you know, for one thing, I'm going to open up a can of worms real quick, but that's okay. George Knight said you got to you gotta open the can to let the worms out. You can disagree or you can agree with women's ordination all you want to. I don't care what your position on women's ordination is. The local newspaper is not the place to air your arguments. You do not use the local newspaper in your non-Adventist community to attack the Seventh-day Adventist church for not believing about women the way you believe. That wasn't in the notes. That was, that was bonus material. <laughs> and I see we're making a video, so that'll be an Easter egg. <laughs> we don't need more people like that in our churches. We've got too many already. We need more Naomi's in the church who just know how to love people. That is the only way that we're really going to lead people to surrender their lives to Jesus, and that's by loving. Let me share. By the way, can I have permission to quote Ellen White here? Okay, because I'm going to do it anyway, but I'd like to have permission. I did this sermon one time, and a guy came up to me afterwards and said, you don't believe in Ellen White, otherwise you wouldn't be quoting her because she says don't quote her. But he didn't show me the reference for that. So I'm just going to quote her. Ministry of Healing, page 470. She says, and by the way, if you forget the rest of this sermon, I don't care. Just memorize this, this paragraph. If you can get this paragraph, your, your day has not been wasted. She says, the badge of Christianity is not an outward sign, not the wearing of a cross or a crown, but it is that which reveals union of God with man. By the power of his grace manifested in the transformation of character, the world is to be convinced that God has sent his son as its redeemer. No other influence that can surround the human soul has such power as the influence of an unselfish life. The strongest argument, the what? So what's stronger than the strongest? Nothing. Because if there was anything stronger than the strongest, it wouldn't be the strongest, would it? So the strongest argument, she says, in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. I'm going to do that one sentence again because that one sentence is the whole sermon. If you get this one sentence, you're good to go. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. 
Ministry of Healing, page 470. So I'm gonna take, take some time now to share with you two memorable stories from my childhood. The first one involves an older lady who lived in our small Adventist community just outside the small, Adventist, small town of Florence, Mississippi. Um, Florence is a, nowadays it's a suburb of Jackson, but when I was growing up, it wasn't even a suburb yet because there was still too much country between Florence and, and Jackson. But nowadays, Florence would be a southern suburb of Jackson. But uh, there was a, there's a, a small Adventist community about two miles south of Florence. Breaks my heart that we no longer have a church there. When I was showing my wife around the community, it broke my heart to pull into what used to be our church parking lot and find it now a Pentecostal church. That breaks my heart. But um, growing up a lot of times in this small town of Florence, Mississippi, there was an old lady in that church, a little blue-haired lady. She really did have blue hair. I don't know where she got the color from, but it really was blue. I only knew her as Aunt Sadie. And, and I knew her as Aunt Sadie because being from the South, everyone who is older than you is aunt or uncle, unless they're your parents or your grandparents. They're all aunt and uncle. Um, I, d I honestly don't think that we were actually related. The closest connection that I, I can remember was she was divorced from my grandma's cousin, um, but not an actual relative of mine. But she was Aunt Sadie. That's all I ever knew her as. And whenever I would be in Florence spending time with my grandparents after my parents had moved away, never would a week go by without Aunt Sadie showing up at our door at least once a week, at least once a week, she would just show up at our door with some fresh homemade baked goods that she had just made for me. And I could always count on there being a loaf of the very best homemade cheese bread I've ever eaten in my life. So if her bread is around, don't ask me to be a vegan. I'm not interested. And if her bread is around, don't talk to me about how you have to wait and let the bread sit for 24 hours before you eat it. I don't care. I'm just going to eat the bread. And then she would also bring me a pan of brownies that she always told me that she had made the brownies with extra chocolate. And now that I'm older, I, I, I have to think, about, think back to that, and I ask, did she have to do that? I mean, was there any law or, or local regulation that says you have to bake a loaf of bread and a pan of brownies and take it to Ethan at his grandparents' house every week? Was there a law that said she had to do that? No, 
Did she owe me anything? No. Like I said, we weren't even really related. So why would a little old blue-haired lady retired and on a fixed income habitually do that week in and week out every single week for a young teenage boy? Why would she do that? Love. Love. She just did it to show love and to be an example of God's love to this teenage boy. And I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going to venture a guess that I probably was not the only teenage boy that she probably did this for. I believe that the Holy Spirit had given her the gift of hospitality, and this was her ministry. She didn't go around preaching to everybody. She didn't go around hammering people over the head with Bible texts and Ellen White quotes to show them how she was right and they were wrong. That wasn't what God had called her to do. God called her to love people. And this is what she did. She just went around showing love. Then there's the second story. My fourth grade teacher. I know you're supposed to change the name to protect the, the guilty. But, but her name just, just really fits. And if you're related to her, I'm sorry. I'm not, I don't mean to be a, uh, insulting your, your relative. But her name was Mrs. Huff. And the name fit her because when I hear that word huff, I instinctively think of the big bad wolf wanting to huff and puff and blow the house down. And for the whole year that, that I had Mrs. Huff as a teacher, I can only remember three things about her. Number one, she was just plain mean in general. Number two, she would take every opportunity that she could find just to remind our impressionable young group of first through fourth graders that nobody who drove a Cadillac could possibly be a Christian. We heard that constantly. How bad it was to drive a Cadillac. If you had a Cadillac, you weren't a Christian. If you were a Christian, you didn't have a Cadillac. Heard it over and over and over and over again. Third, at the end of class, we would always, at the end of the school day, we would always end class with prayer. And, and we, us kids, we would take turns with who did the prayer. And I'll never forget one day it was little first grade Melissa's turn to have the closing prayer. I was a fourth grader. Melissa was first grade. I don't remember everything she said in her prayer, but I'll never forget the close. She ended her prayer by saying, and dear Jesus, please help us to be nice. Amen. Isn't that sweet? Well, once she said amen, it was time to dismiss us. It was time for us to go, right? Mrs. Huff would not dismiss us until she took the time to reprimand Melissa in front of the whole class to let her know, Melissa, it's not important to be nice. Jesus doesn't care if you're nice. Jesus just wants you to be good. 
I was in the fourth grade. I've been 39 for the last five years now. I've never forgotten it. That story has stuck with me for all these years, and I never will forget it. Now, out of those two women, which one do you think was the more effective example of Christ-like love, Aunt Sadie or Mrs. Huff? Aunt Sadie. Of these two women, which do you think would be better at winning souls, Aunt Sadie or Mrs. Huff? Aunt Sadie. Like I said, I'm a lot older now. But I think I can honestly say that had every Seventh-day Adventist I ever met growing up been just like Mrs. Huff, I probably wouldn't be here today. But God saw fit that for every Mrs. Huff I ever encountered growing up in this church, that he always made sure that there was another Aunt Sadie there to counteract the damage of the Mrs. Huff. Now, Rick told you that we're, we're basically, we're waiting for our next call. We think we know where we're going. We just haven't had the actual interview yet. But um, I'll share with you what, what's, what's going on, and y'all can be praying for us. Okay, how many of you are willing to pray for us? Okay, thank you. Um, we've had some health issues, which, which caused us to have, to have to temporarily leave ministry in Kansas, Nebraska. But um, as we were starting to go through these issues, I, I could start to see God leading us in a new direction. Um, the conference had actually sent us to spend two weeks at the um, health retreat in Black Hills up in South Dakota. And we got home from Black Hills, and a few days later, um, I got a phone call on a Friday evening from head elder at the church nearest to our house, and, and he told me that um, one of the previous pastors and his wife had both died recently, and even though they had both moved away many years earlier, I had never met either of them, um, and none of the family lived anywhere nearby, um, the family had decided that they wanted to all get together and have the funeral for both parents at our church there in Coffeyville, Kansas. And I thought that was a little strange because, I mean, they didn't live there. The family didn't live there. Literally nobody lived there. So of all places in the country, why have the funeral at the church two blocks from my house? And... Um, she said, we want to have it on May 18 because that's the first weekend, the first Sabbath, that the speaker that we want to do the funeral is available. And she told me who it was, and I got rather excited because he was the best ministerial director I've ever worked for in my life. In fact, he was the reason I left the Arizona conference, and I left Arizona because he left Arizona. And I, I missed working for him because I, I was having trouble with the guy who replaced him. But now he's back in Arizona as president. And I'm, as soon as I hear that, that God is bringing my favorite boss that I've ever worked for 
to do a funeral two blocks from my house, I'm thinking, God, are you about to send us back to Arizona? So then another week, week and a half, whatever, passes by. And I'm on Facebook, and I just happen to notice that the pastor of the church at Thunderbird Academy in Phoenix announces that he's leaving. And I read that, and I looked at my wife, and I hadn't even talked to, to the president yet to, you know, tell him that, you know, what we're thinking. But I see that the, this pastor from the academy is, is leaving. And I, I looked at my wife, and I said, I know where we're going next. She says, where? I said, God's about to send us to Thunderbird Academy. She was a little skeptical, but uh, that's what I believed. And then a couple weeks later, when it was time for the funeral, uh, the president and I, we start talking. And he tells me that I'm actually his first choice for who he wants for that church. So now we're just waiting for him to fly us out there for the interview. So please pray for us. But if this is indeed where God is calling us to go, my number one goal for myself and hopefully for my wife is we need to be Aunt Sadie for everyone there. We don't need to be Mrs. Huff. I don't want anybody saying that they left the Seventh-day Adventist Church because of us. I want people to say, we stayed in the Seventh-day Adventist Church because of how Pastor Ethan and Laura loved us and discipled us, how they showed us Jesus. God made sure when I was growing up that for every Mrs. Huff I met, there was another Aunt Sadie to balance her out, balance them out. And so I want us to be Aunt Sadie's to the next generation. Here's one more powerful statement from Ellen White on the, on the, um, uh, on the power of our influence. This is from Adventist Home, page 427. She says, those who profess to be followers of Christ and are at the same time rough, unkind, and uncourteous in words and deportment have not learned of Jesus. A blustering, overbearing, fault-finding man is not a Christian. For to be a Christian is to be Christ-like. The conduct of some professed Christians is so lacking in kindness and courtesy that their good is evil spoken of. Their sincerity may not be doubted. Their uprightness may not be questioned. But sincerity and uprightness will not atone for a lack of kindness and courtesy. The Christian is to be sympathetic as well as true, pitiful and courteous as well as upright and honest. In other words, it's not enough to be right. You also got to be nice with how right you are. So as I come to the end, I want us to think seriously about something. Did you know 
that the way that we witness will determine the types of converts we bring in. If we will love people and build relationships with people first and then share the Bible-based Seventh-day Adventist message with them in a Christ-centered way, we will then create loving disciples who will want to win others to Jesus in the same way that they have been won. But on the other hand, if we decide that the best way to do evangelism is to use scare tactics and sensationalism, fear-mongering to try to reach people, Number one, we will offend and chase off more people than we will ever win. But if we do win anybody with those methods, what kind of witnesses will they then turn out to be? They will be what we taught them to be. In his lengthy rebuke to the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 15, he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You see, using scare tactics and and fear-mongering and focusing on the rules and the regulations Uh, That might, quote unquote, win certain people, but what have we really won them to? Have we made genuine disciples of Christ by using those methods, or have we just created more uh, fanatical Pharisees to give us trouble in the future? Listen to this final powerful statement from Ellen White as I close. She says, Desire of Ages, page 20, she says, God desires only the service of love. And love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. And his character must be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan, end quote. So here's my question for all of us today. What type of witness do you want to be? Do you want to be like Naomi, whose loving example and witness influenced a pagan woman named Ruth to choose her people and her faith over her own heathen family and heathen religion? Or would you prefer to be like the Pharisees? using fear as a motivation and rules as a club to beat followers into submission, creating more fanatics to cause problems for God and his church. God needs more of us to be like Naomi so that we can love people into this message. God needs more Aunt Sadie's in this church to counteract the work of the Mrs. Huffs that the devil has put in here to drive people away. Which will you be? Will you be a loving disciple who can provide the gospel with extra chocolate to all of those around you, showing them the love of Jesus Christ through your love for them?
If that's your desire, please stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the the lessons that your word teaches us. And I pray, Lord, that as we're standing, you see the decisions we're making publicly. I pray that you would make those decisions solidified and real in our hearts. That we would be just as loving to everyone around us as we say right now that we want to be. Lord, take the meanness out of our hearts. Take the fear-mongering out of our hearts. Take the legalism out of our hearts. And teach us to love those around us in the same way that you loved us. Maybe the problem, Lord, is we don't really realize just how much you do love us. So I pray that you would help us to realize just exactly how much you love us so that that love can transform us to help us to love others in the same way. Help us all, Lord, to be Aunt Sadie's to everyone around us. In Jesus' name.